Okay, when I was a little girl, I learned this saying, and if you if you know it, go ahead and join me. This is the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. See all the people. Now, I remember my mom, when I was four, <clears throat> sitting down with me and saying, now you know that the church is not the building. And the church is the people. So how many you resonate with that, okay. <laughs> um, so I was taught that, oops, how did that happen? Hang on. Are you at the end of your, is that your last oh, one, so your first one? maybe that's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. So we learned that the church is the people, and so in Churches of Christ, generally speaking, our church buildings have historically been a reflection of our semantics. And then our semantics and um, have been a reflection of our theology. So the people are the church, and our buildings have been simple to reflect this understanding. So I'm bringing to this class a spiritual DNA of, um, that says that our buildings are to be practical and efficient and unornamented. That aesthetics are a waste of money that could be used for evangelism, mostly, especially, I would say, in the 60s. And then now our, our students especially are so interested in reaching out to the disenfranchised that now I think what those of us that grew up in Churches of Christ would call that benevolence. So, then um, things started to shake up for me when I was a fine arts major at Harding. And I got to go to Europe the first time when I was 19. And <laughs> being uh, a 19-year-old, having grown up in Churches of Christ, I knew all the answers. Right? Can any of you relate to that? The only problem was I got to Europe and found out I didn't even know the questions. I, that was very sobering to me. And I started to think on my own for the first time. And um, then uh, Randy and I had the privilege not only of visiting Europe, but of living in Italy with our students. Not only did we live in Italy, we got to live in Florence, Italy, the home of the Renaissance. Um, and my ideas really began to be challenged again. I found that we, we took so many unchurched students with us. Um, this was when we were at Pepperdine. And it was the easiest evangelism I have ever done because the students that we would travel with would look up at some of the representations on ceilings and walls and they say, what's going on there? And it was so easy to say, well, let me tell you about that. So um, it, the, the art did its trick. It was so easy to talk to them about God in that way. Um, 
I was very blessed to pursue my master's degree in ministry at Pepperdine. And I got to learn church history from Richard Hughes. I mean, I got to uh, learn hermeneutics and theology from Tom Albright and Ron Highfield. I mean, talk about being blessed. And I even got to explore the roles of women in scripture with Deesta and Stuart Love. So that began to feed into my thinking as well. Um, I worked as an interior designer <clears throat> from 1978 until 1990, and that's when I became a campus minister at Pepperdine and pursued the, the degree in ministry. And when I moved back, uh, when Randy and I moved to Nashville the first time, um, those doors weren't really open because I was a female, and so I began teaching the history of I'm sorry, I began working at Earl Swenson Associates here in town as a healthcare designer. And one of the things that really challenged my thinking was going to Fresno with Randy and the Zoe group. And there was a renowned neurosurgeon, a pediatric neurosurgeon named Witt in the congregation. And I asked Witt if he would show me the hospital where he worked. And it was such a profound experience for me because he helped me to see that the environment played such a role in the healing process that even though I didn't feel like what I was doing was sacred, through his eyes I began to re-see that the what I was offering was a healing environment in which people like him could use Jesus to heal people instead of being a warehouse for sick people. And so I began to challenge my thinking again. What really culminated my thought process after being challenged all those years <clears throat> was when I left the design studio and went into the classroom. And I had the opportunity to teach uh, the history of architecture and interiors. And we started with ancient, ancient uh, buildings like the pyramids. And, um, and I began to realize as we were going through history that the only buildings that we have to look at from ancient to present um, were the places of worship because they were built with enduring materials. We don't have examples of houses until you get to Henry VIII and that period of time when uh, the Reformation was happening. And so I, that began to play on my mind, thinking there, there is something to this, um, that it's not just a practical thing, that there is something very sacred going on. So uh, with my background of church history and theology, I started piecing all of this together, and um, I had to couch things very carefully on 
a secular campus. And so I've always wanted to be able to not to present the material without having to tiptoe around the theology behind what was going on. So there we go. <laughs> Here we are in this class. Um, as a designer, I've been trained that the form of a space is to follow its function. So I evaluate the function of a space and let the architectural forms flow from the function and the philosophical needs so that the building works for the people rather than the people having to work in spite of the building. So it follows then that you can walk into a space and know how it functions. And this was certainly true of the church buildings in the late 50s and early 60s by the Payton brothers. Here we go. <laughs> During those years, the Churches of Christ were the fastest growing religious group in America. To stay abreast of the growth, the Payton Brothers construction provided building plans that were cost-effective, functionally efficient, and easy to build. We basically were provided with an easily identifiable architectural form that branded us almost as easily as the McDonald's arches. You could roll into almost any town in the southeast and in California and know which building was a Church of Christ without even seeing the sign. The basic form was the symmetrical A-framed uh, center structure with horizontal wings on each side. Um, you entered, uh, oh, uh, it rarely included a steeple. And I included this particular picture of a church in California because this was so unique that it did have a steeple. Um, very rare. But as you can see, the, uh, the stairs were actually, uh, uh, the, I'm sorry, the entry, the doors, were on the slab so that it's not like you ascended to worship. You went in to worship, okay? Um, these simple doors face the street and the community and when you walk through them, you walked into a foyer and to enter the auditorium, and I'm being very specific about my semantics here, to enter the auditorium, you went through the double doors that opened into a central aisle. Once again, this is the inside, and it's probably one of the most elaborate Churches of Christ I've ever seen because it actually has stained glass windows, behind the baptistry. Now this was rare because usually it would be like in Churches of Christ in, in Colorado when I was growing up. There was a preacher named Jack Carter that was um, a minister and he would go around and draw and paint pictures of the River Jordan mm -hmm. and behind the baptistry. So this was very unique and rare. Um, so the, the pews uh, flanked this center aisle and uh, the focal point was the baptistry set in the furthermost wall uh, just above the pulpit and it was uh, centered on the podium where the preacher stood 
and the communion table was centered on the floor with the inscription, do this in remembrance of me. The ceiling was supported by these transverse arches uh, <laughs> made of bent wood that spanned the floors on each side up the walls and met at the center apex. And the arches repeated from the front to the back of the auditorium. So as a little child, I felt like I was in the belly of Jonah's fish, <laughs> looking up at its ribcage. In between the beams and the junction of the wall, right here, um, the, uh, there were cove ceiling boxes that concealed fluorescent lights that threw light up onto the ceiling for reflected light. And in today's building standards, we would applaud them for being efficient and cost-effective, sustainable lighting solutions. And we were way ahead of the time. Not having windows in the auditorium also made it easy to heat it and cool it using air conditioning. You know, when I was really little, Dad preached at a church that was a you know clapboard building with the great big windows and the ceiling fans, and you had the uh, uh, paper fans that were in the pews in front of you, the funeral fans, to keep you nice and cool. But no more. We didn't have the the, the windows because we had air conditioning, and so. It made it easy to heat and cool using the HVAC. Um, the only windows in the building were in the classrooms, and even those were transom windows that allowed light from the top of the wall. No window blinds or curtains were necessary um, for privacy or light direction, and it was efficient to build, and the utility bills were minimal. They really were far above their, their time. So every surface, walls, ceilings, pews, and even floors were hard surfaces. So that enhanced our acapella singing. You could walk in and it was a live room. Full immersion baptism was as central to our identity as the baptistry was central to the room. Placing the pulpit in the center reflected our emphasis on knowledge of the Word. The Lord's table was used every Sunday in accordance with our understanding of Scripture. In fact, having the Lord's table on the floor was a statement that we believed in the priesthood of all believers. There was no screen that separated priests from the congregation. Any baptized male could wait on the table, lead a prayer, lead singing, preach, or give announcements. The architectural forms, the finishes, and the furniture followed a theological function. The fact that we had no grand entrance to the building was a statement that all were welcome. The horizontal thrust of the architecture was a, a reflection of our belief in the importance of the church. Believers not buildings. There was a conspicuous lack of symbolism, especially across. Um, symbols or images were avoided so as to avoid idolatry. 
Some baptistries had this, the artist's depiction of the River Jordan. Some podiums had floral arrangement, but this was usually the extent of the addition of color or aesthetic representations of any kind. A songboard flanked the podium on the left, and an attendance giving board flanked the podium on the right. There were no shows of ostentation, such as stained glass windows. Uh, growing up, I knew that this aesthetic simplicity meant we had more money for evangelism. And the wall behind the pulpit was usually a neutral color. Um, in the 60s, my dad always preached in this black suit with a white shirt and a black tie. And I was little, and I didn't know about after image. You may not either. Uh, there's an optical illusion called after image so that when our eyes stare at an object for a period of time, we can look away and continue to see the image, the form, in its opposite color. So if you're wearing blue, you would look away and it would be orange. Or uh, if it's red, you would look away and it would be a, f uh, a shade of, of bluish green. And so that's why doctors now wear not white, but bluish green scrubs so that when they're sur doing surgery, their eyes can recover quickly when they look away because the after images of blood is the same color as what they're wearing and so they can recover very quickly. So, if I was looking at my dad, and he was in black on this neutral background, whenever he moved, there was this after image of white. And I was so mesmerized by that. I would see that he appeared to glow when he moved because of the after image. And I was in awe of that and thought it had to do with my dad's holiness. Because <laughs> he really was one of the holiest people I had ever known. Um, there were, of course, exceptions to the simple structure. I was always excited to visit my grandparents in Fort Worth. They worshipped at the Northside Church of Christ. And their, um, their church was uh, done in the um, Renaissance Revival style. And I loved it. And I, I couldn't help it. I just thought it was beautiful. <laughs> um, the Campus Church of Christ in Abilene, which is now the University Church of Christ, when I was little, it was the most beautiful place of worship I had ever seen. I can still picture it right now. And, of course, they mucked it all up in the 70s. But... <sighs> Both of these structures were built in the Renaissance Revival, and uh, the Broadway Church of Christ, which is pictured here, was built in the Romanesque Revival style. No matter what the structure looked like, be it clapboard or classical, we were intentional about the terms we used for our architecture and functions. We intentionally called them buildings, not cathedrals and not churches we used the term auditorium rather than sanctuary because of our theology. So we're going to fast forward from the 60s to the 21st century of today. 
Church architectural forms are morphing to follow expanding functions. Technical advances such as these of air conditioning and the introduction of fluorescent gold lighting allowed the new church buildings to be built without windows in the 60s. Today, it's being driven by the technical advances such as audiovisual technology, uh, sound systems, stage and dimmable lighting that have altered the look and feel of worship spaces. Many of these new worship centers, and I just realized I semantically switched worship center, feature multi-use auditoriums. Um, so you might go into an auditorium such as uh, the one at Woodmont up the street, and the floor is laid out with markings for a basketball court. Or you can break down the, the movable chairs and turn it into a wedding reception. You know, it's, it's multi-use in that way. Gone are the pulpits and the stairs on the podium that used to uh, invest our male leaders with a sense of gravitas and endorsement. Um, the tables for communion elements are largely absent in recent construction. Um, pews have been replaced with stackable chairs, and baptistries are sometimes located nearby, but not in the auditorium. These changes are accompanied by new ter terminology. We don't go to church, we go to worship. Um, we don't have auditoriums, we have worship centers. We don't have a church building, we have campuses. Do you see what I'm saying? So, it's been my experience that conversing about construction, maintenance, or renovation of our buildings is usually painful. Uh, for example, the emergent church values serving the poor and the disenfranchised and taking the gospel beyond church walls into the community. This takes money money that as some see it is wasted on elaborate church buildings. We also value corporate worship, the education of our children, teens, and adults. Providing a place for that to happen also takes money though. When seekers enter the doors of our buildings, they form a first impression of us as a community of believers. What do our buildings say about us? What do we want them to say about us? Are there gaps between perception and reality? Having such a discourse may be painful, but I think it's also valuable. I used to feel that being a designer was somewhat inferior in the kingdom work. It felt very secular to me, and I wanted my life to be dedicated to the sacred. And that's when God put into my life uh, Wit, who I was telling you about, that took me to his pediatric hospital. Um, based on my experience with him and on documentation about healthcare environments, I have to acknowledge that environment matters to physical healing. It makes me question, what about spiritual healing? Let me share another experience that shaped my thinking about worship environments. While we were in Nashville um, the first time, um, I felt very called to reach out to the Muslim women in our community. 
you know, we have the largest Kurdish population outside of um, their home country. And so I went to some classes that were taught by Muslims who had turned to being believers in Christ and were professing Christians. And they educated us about Islam so that we could be effective in that community and not offensive. So one of our experiences was to visit a local mosque, the one down here on, is it 12th? Mm -hmm. The environment was so offensive to me. Oh, I realized that where we worship and what it looks like is not irrelevant. It is important. And I viscerally experienced that architectural form does indeed follow a theological function. That was very hard on me. When we worked at the campus church in Atlanta, the church was remodeling their facility. <clears throat> they asked me to help them design the changes. And it really thrilled me when people uh, told me that what I was doing was making a difference in their worship experience. Uh, I was also, at the same time, where I was very happy that this was making a difference, I was also empathetic with, to the teens who were very critical about the changes that were being made because they wanted to spend the money not to renovate, but to reach out to the disenfranchised in our community. So one of the church leaders met with the teens and asked them these three questions. When you go to shop, um, do you want to go to Discover Meals, which was an older, overcrowded, slightly run-down mall, or the newer, more attractive Mall of Georgia? The students all picked the latter. When he asked if they'd rather bring their friends to worship in a facility that looks tired or to an attractive building, um, he made this analogy. When we travel, we don't like to stop at rundown motels. We like to stop at hotels that look like they're clean and up-to-date. And uh, so why would we want to offer worship to God in a facility that looks worn down and outdated? What would that say about our faith to seekers? Um, my husband spends hours, I can attest to this, planning worship, both, both worship, so that it's possible to offer his very best, as Randy says, excellence to God. Um, so why would we want an environment that says we don't offer our best? Uh, if atmosphere is not important, why are so many people drawn to visit? and even work for hours at Starbucks. Do you know what I'm saying? So these perspectives have helped me to believe that it is helpful for us to think about what we're saying theologically in our aesthetic decisions as we build and renovate in order to witness to Christ in our communities. Phyllis Tickle explored the changing face of Christianity in her book, The Great Emergence how Christianity is changing, and why. And I have been very challenged by her observations. Her thesis is built on the observation that every 500 years, the church has a rummage sale. 
So we go through and um, any religious structures of the day are challenged and broken so that renewal and new growth occur. She observes that we're living in right now in just such an age. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's very thought-provoking. So while I was reading Tickle's book, I began reflecting on church architecture, and I came to the realization that architectural changes have loosely followed this 500-year five cycle. Um, the 21st century, which is the Great Emergence, that's what she's calling it, um, is the one that we live in. Roughly 500 years ago was the Great Reformation in the 16th century. 500 years before that, it was the Great Schism in the 11th century. Five before that was Gregory the Great, when uh, monasteries began to preserve what the hordes were decimating um, when they overcame the Roman Empire. And 500 years before that was the Apostolic Church. You can even take this back in Jewish history every 500 years. You can continue it like that. So I thought that it would be fun to take a backward look uh, to help us move forward. We have to look back to look forward thoughtfully and creatively as we struggle how to express our theolo theology functionally and aesthetically. Ironically, we have no ancient ruins for the worship of the living God. Yahweh tells his chosen people that he wants to dwell with them. Unlike the ancient understanding of located gods, Yahweh travels with his people visually in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he provided a tent of meeting uh, that was a temporary and very transportable structure that was made of and filled with objects of great intrinsic value and decorated by divine inspiration. Um, the architect being God himself, as scriptures say. It was funded by contribution of the slaves of the Exodus from the riches that the Egyptians had sent them away with. So these slaves, the, the people of Egypt were going, here, take this, <laughs> leave. We don't want you anymore. And so they had gold and precious stones like turquoise and garnets and um, uh, just think of the treasures that we found in 1922 from Tutankhamun's tomb. Okay, take that, all the riches, all those beautiful colors of lapis lazuli, and think, oh, those went into the making of God's tabernacle. And it's just amazing to me how carefully they were packed as, as they went from place to place. God gave very specific in instructions about how they were to be um, cared for in transition. So, God later allowed Solomon 
to construct a permanent dwelling place, which was the temple that David desired to dedicate to his holy presence among Israel. But no expense was spared under Solomon. It was lavish. Only the finest and rarest of building materials were utilized. Only the most elegant and royal of colors decorated the interiors. It was an extravagant display of honor for the most extravagant, loving God. Ironically, the structure is not one of those that remains for us to visit. It was destroyed by the people of Judah, uh, I'm sorry, by the Babylonians when they took the people of Judea um, into Babylonian captivity. The synagogue worship began during this time of history. And the second temple was built when Cyrus, the king of Persia, allowed Ezra to return to Jerusalem and rebuild. Now, Herod the Great, this is a three-quarters size model of what it might have looked like um, that's at the museum in Jerusalem. And it's fascinating to walk around it. Because <clears throat> you really understand where the court of women was, where the court of the Gentiles, what quarter the the Christians were able to worship in um, before the persecution. And really the only way we have any kind of understanding of it is from this coin that was found that has the, the impression of the... Um, at the temple, and next week I'll, I'll go into a whole lot more detail about the the theology behind the temple and um, the way it was built. So, um, even though Herod did build the temple, it wasn't considered the third temple. It was still considered the second temple because he never interrupted, he built it in such a way, it never interrupted the, the Levitical sacrifices. And so it was still considered the second temple. But then it was completely destroyed in AD 71 because uh, Titus came through and didn't leave a stone. Yeah, he just decimated it. Now we do have underground examples of it, which I will show you next week, um, that are just amazing, and it kind of gives you a scope of the grandeur of this building that was built um, to the, the worship of the living God. Okay, so Jews that, um, this is the courtyard, the model of the courtyard, where uh, Peter um, healed people and where the, the early church had their, their um, met together until they were disbanded. Okay, so early Christians. So this would be um, Jewish Christians, Roman Christians, slaves and free men and women worshiped together in Roman homes. And um, Women in the first century were allowed a lot of freedom in the home, not outside the home. So the early church uh, allowed women to, it was, it was uh, 
it was considered that women could pray in the church. It was normal for them to be able to serve um, in the church because they were in the home. And the um, structure of the Roman home is a great deal different from the homes of like the 21st century. Uh, a great example of that is at the J. Paul Givy Museum in Malibu. If you haven't had an opportunity to go there, I highly recommend it. When Vesuvius erupted, um, it decimated Herculaneum and, um, and Pompeii. And in the excavated ruins of Herculaneum, they found these floor plans of the villa that was covered up. And so they reproduced it in Malibu. J. Paul Getty did. And it gives us an experiential look at the way Roman homes were set up for doing business and for worship. The home was actually uh, built around this impluvial basin. And then there were side rooms that they could do um, for business and leisure and sleeping that radiated from the center courtyard. So it's easier to visualize the Christians meeting at homes when one sees the actual structure of the home. Probably when they broke bread together um, on Sundays, they probably did it in the triclinium. And next week I'll show you the inside of that triclinium. Um, um, possibly the tablinium and um, maybe even this atrium that was built around the impluvium. Um, so home churches that Melton met in wealthy members' homes were more likely to meet there. To some extent, it was the shape of the home and the freedoms in the home that influenced Christian worship in the first century. In synagogue worship, Archaeological evidence indicates that in some locales, women were separated from the men by a screen. And that's very typical if you go to um, Jewish um, sites in, um, in Israel today, you will see a screen and women sit behind the screen. Worship in the home eliminated those separations. Although respectable women of good standing did not have freedom outside the home, her freedom to serve within the home and to shed the veil within the private quarters allowed her to be an integral part of worship at table, the Lord's table, and in prophesying and in prayer as long as her head was covered. When Christians were discovered to be a separate sect from the Jews, though, the Christians in Rome uh, is like especially in Rome, were driven underground to some extent. And Romans had family mausoleums where the cremated remains of the family members were stored. You can even now go into the, the catacombs and the first rooms that you'll see are urns of, uh, say it again? Deceased. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and so they, they show you that the Romans cremated and had these mausoleums uh, in these crypts. So, what the what to follow their theology because they believed in the resurrection of the dead, they chose not to be cremated. 
They chose to be buried. Um, and so when you walk into the, the catacombs, you'll see that there are layers. It's kind of like a hotel of, on a small scale, <laughs> of little narrow openings and wide. And they would literally shelve the body in there, and then they would fill it up with the deceased. So uh, you could also walk in to the, um, help me out, I just lost the word. Uh, say it again? The yeah, the catacombs. You can also walk into the catacombs and see who was a martyr. And the way you see, you know if it's a martyr is if they have an arched opening to their remains. <coughs> and this is where we first begin to see uh, symbols in Christianity. Um, because of course in, in Jewish, uh, the Jewish tradition was not to have, because God said, don't have any graven images. So they did not use images of human beings. And so um, when Christianity spread to the Greco-Roman world, we began to see Christian symbols being used. For example, this is an anchor, and um, it harkens back to some of the ways that Christians were drowned um, in martyrdom. The fish is a symbol of Christianity um, because the um, acronym for Jesus the Christ, uh, the acronym actually spelled fish. So if you were in a situation where you didn't know if you were talking to a Christian or not, you kind of suspected that they were. Um, one person would do this on the ground, and if the other person on this side did that, it made the sign of the fish. So you could identify yourself safely as a, as a Christian. So um, another symbol that was very important to them was resurrection. So Jonah coming out of the mouth of the fish was a very important and potent symbol to them of resurrection because Jesus had said, uh, I will give you the sign of Jonah. You can bury me and and three days later, I'll rise. Um, so, looks like, yeah, I overshot. So, next week, what we'll be doing is I'll pick up with the temple, and then we're going to move into the Greco-Roman world. And I'm going to explain to you a little bit about um, the churches in Jerusalem, Ephesus, Corinth, and so forth. And so we'll start there and then we'll begin our journey going forward through the ages, but we'll go all the way back to the first century. And so we'll start that next week. Thank you so much for being with us today.